So I wasn't planning on this, but the reason why I have so much gray hair is that I'm friends with Dave. So like, <laughs> right, that's the stress. So 19 days, ago, 19 days ago, a storm hit our life. Um, it was an un- unexpected storm. It's like one of those storms where like, it just comes out of nothing. And our world got rocked. And after my wife, the first two people I texted were Dave and Tyler. Because I knew they'd be there for me. And they invited me to Streets Tacos, and we had tacos, and they just spoke truth into my life. They spoke the gospel truth, the truth of what God had gifted me in. And so I want to encourage you, you guys have awesome pastors. So again, and I know they're not doing this for the praise of man, but I encourage you as you go about today and weeks to come to encourage them, to thank them, to write notes, right? That's so encouraging for those of us who do this. So write notes to them, thanking them for this work. Again, they're not doing it for man's praise, but it does help. It encourages them in that. And so as, as the storm hit, it made our life unstable. The things that we thought were there, the things that we thought were going to be constant, all of a sudden were gone. And as I was reading um, scripture, as I was reading these passages, I was reminded that the God who moved back then is still moving today. It's the same God who is moving And so it's so much God's timing that this would be the sermon series where I would come and teach. It's the same God. And so as as we hear today's passage, as we listen to today's passage, I want us to have our mind that the same God who moved back during this passage, this story, is the same God moving today, and he wants to move in the same way today. So typically, I think, uh, when pastors come to preach, They'll be the ones that read scripture. But when, when I was in Israel this past year, I was just struck with how different their worship would be. Where, where the word would be brought to the center, and then those people would stand, and then they would read the passage for like 30 or 40 minutes at a time. Now, we're not going to do that here today, I don't think. Um, but again, but then the message was really short. And the whole idea is that it's God's word that, that we need to, to listen to. I know Dave and I have been talking, and I've done this, and he's probably done this too, where we've like said, oh yeah, we don't really have time for that passage, and then here's, here's words from me, right? We've done that, but so I want to encourage today is we're going to listen to God's word, and, and you may know what passage this is from, and I encourage you to keep your Bibles closed, even close your eyes and listen as Faith and Levi lead us in this passage so that we can hear the same God who moved then, who is moving now. So, so Faith and Levi, if you want to come up and you want to read today's passage for us. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdemim between Soko and Ezekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? 
Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man, and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man, and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to attend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistines came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry them hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of the shepherd, loaded up the set, and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached, he reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out, of, out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him with great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt him, exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They, repli- they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? said David. Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. 
Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in a pouch in his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with a shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and a spear and javelin, but I come against you with the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I'll give you the caracases of the Philistine armies to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that there is, that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, but the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistines moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stones sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and threw it in from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout, and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharam road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in, their, in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistines, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before the Saul. Was David still holding the Philistine's head? Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I'm the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. So here's the danger of preaching on David and Goliath, is all of you probably have heard this story at some point, right? Right, and we've heard this story, and I've heard this story, and it can be really easy to be like, yep, David, Goliath, there's a smaller guy, there's, there's a bigger guy, the smaller guy wins. I also, I also hate that idea since I'm a bigger guy. Like, the bigger guy always should win. But, but there's this idea, and we're like, oh, sweet, that's a great story. But in context, the story is much bigger than that. So I want us to think of a... Marvel movie. Any fans of the Marvel movies? Right? Marvel movies are awesome. Somebody was told to raise their hand, so like, you must love it even more than I do. But, 
But there's these awesome fight, fight um, scenes in there. Now imagine if there were the fight scenes and we didn't know the rest of the movie. Like if we just saw that scene, we're like, okay, like that's a cool fight scene, but we might not know everything else that's going on. There may be things that we may miss. Same thing with, with this passage, and I, and I would say all of Scripture, is that there's a context. There's a story that is going on, and this story fits in. So I want to just do a quick reminder for us of the story that's going on. The story starts, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The story is ultimately about God. Every passage, every story, every page, every word points us to what God is doing in this world. What he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. It's pointing towards God. And so when we listen to David and Goliath, it's not a story about David and Goliath. Yes, they play part of it. Yes, we'll talk about that. But ultimately, the main character is God. He is the one who is moving. So in the beginning, God what? He creates the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, which, which is an okay translation, but there's older translations that would say it's wild and wilderness. It's chaotic. There is chaos. And it says the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over that chaos. So, the, so we have God, the main character. There's chaos, and God moves. And what does he do in days one, two, and three? He brings order. He takes that chaos, and he separates it, right? It's light and dark, water and sky, water and land. He separates them over the first three days. He brings order. And then days four, five, and six, he fills, right, with birds, with fish, with creatures, with stars, with other lights. He fills it, flourishing. He brings flourishing. So order and flourishing, there actually is a biblical word about that, which is called shalom. God brings shalom, the order and flourishing, to chaos. And then he invites human partners along. Now, again, I think that's a terrible idea if if it was me who was God, I would not invite human partners, but God does. I don't know why he does, but he invites us into it. And the humans take the shalom and they're living it out, they're doing it, and then they cause shalom to shatter because they trust their eyes over their ears. God told them not to eat of the fruit, and they saw it and said, oh, it looks good, let's eat it. And so they ate it. And then um, shalom is shattered and chaos creeps and covers over the earth. It starts with, with Adam and Eve, and it spreads to their family. It spreads to everyone except for Noah's family. And then even after the flood, they're like, hey, let's, let's build this whole, whole tower, right? Chaos ensues. And it looks hopeless. Like if we were reading the story for the first time, we'd be like, oh, this, this whole, whole idea that God had for Shalom, it's broken. Like it's over with. But God knows something. There's a man named Abram, and he knows Abram's character, how he'll give up his name, his, his good for the sake of somebody else. And so he plants him as a seed of sh- shalom in the world. He says, you are my shalom seed, and from you, you will bless the whole world. And then we go farther on the story, and the people of shalom are enslaved. They're in Egypt. And it seems, again, like shalom is dead, but God shows up. He shows up, and he does 10 plagues. And each one is, a, is against the God, God, God of Egypt. It's like, this God of Egypt has this power, I'll show you that I'm more powerful. And he does it over and over and over again to show the people that I am the God. I am the one who's powerful. But then God's people still have the slave nature inside of them, and so they wander for 40 years. God is testing them, refining what's inside of them. And then God lets them have their land. 
He brings them in. And I think we can think, oh, well, that's just some random piece of land. Why would God put them there? No, this, this piece of land in, in, in the old times, when biblical times, it was right in the center. So God's people are to be a people of shalom. If they're in the center, people pass through. And when you're traveling through hundreds of miles by foot or by camel, what are some things that you will need? Water, food, shelter. And God's people were supposed to provide that so that those people would be changed. If if they encounter shalom and then they go out from the world, what are they going to bring to the outmost parts of the world? Shalom, order and flourishing and goodness. Right, so God places his people there on purpose. And that's where we enter this story. It's that God's people are in a place on a purpose so that the world may be blessed, so that every part of the earth may be filled with shalom. So we said it, the, 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 the Philistines were on one hill and Israelites on the other. And we may just be thinking, hey, it's random hills. No. So what would happen or what was happening is with the Philistines, right, they'd be down here. The, the um, Israelites were encamped here. There was a highway that would go through, and then there was jo- Jerusalem. What is that? That's the center of Israel. The center of Israel. Again, so, so these, these Philistines were trying to take over the center of Israel so that they could rule the center of the world, that the kingdom of chaos could rule the center of the world, so that chaos would be spread throughout there. So when we listen to David and Goliath, when we listen to it, it's a much bigger deal than just some random battle between some small guy and a big guy. The stake of the world is at hand. What is going to rule the world? What's going to be at the center of the world and therefore spread? Is it going to be chaos or is it going to be shalom? It says there was a champion named Goliath who was from Gath who came out of the Philistine camp. Goliath was a huge man. Right? There's, there's some debates of how tall. Was he like six foot six? Or was he nine foot tall? He was big. Like think, think Mike Gruppin, but like a little taller, maybe a little bit bigger. Like is a big dude. He was a champion fighter. And he had hundreds of pounds of, of armor on. He was ready to go. And, and again, we can be listening like, hey, how, how, um, how come 1v1? How come there was a champion? And they would often do that to save bloodshed. If one person could fight one person, they'd, they'd decide the battle. So that was a common practice then. And as we're listening, it's morning and evening. But like, how come um, Goliath was coming out twice? And the reason why he was coming out twice is that those were the holy times for Israel. Those were the holy times of prayer and worship. And he came out during that. Why? Because he wanted to mock their God. He said, oh, your God's not strong. I'm going to come out during that time. There's nothing you can do. There's a little twist that he even says, these are the armies of Saul. And David says what? These are the armies of God, right? Goliath is just picking on him. Goliath is saying, like, your God is weak. Your God can't do anything. Our gods are better than your God. And so you have the Israelites and Saul here, Goliath. The passage mentions Saul on purpose. See, Saul, Saul was their king. And the king's job was to say, God's honor matters to me and bring shalom to the world. So if no one else would fight, it was 
It was um, Saul's job to go out there and fight Goliath. That was his job because he was king. If no other champion fighter would go out there, he was supposed to be the one. He was supposed to be the one that was supposed to step in, but he didn't. Why? Because there was fear in his heart because he trusted his eyes over his ears. See, God said, this is your land. I've put you here on purpose. I will be with you in battle. But he saw with his eyes, he saw the terrifying sight of Goliath. And it talks about 40 days. 40 days Goliath came out and mocked them and, and taunted them and did this over and over. What else was 40? Let's think about the number 40. Anyone tell me about the number 40? Just shout it out. Jesus, yep. In 40 years, 40 is this idea of testing, of revealing what's inside the heart. And so Saul was tested for 40 days, and what, what was inside his heart? Fear. Fear. And then the story takes a huge turn. It says this, Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. So a shepherd boy entering a battle scene should be confusing. Like, like we should be watching a Marvel movie and somebody who is bringing food is also filming this, this younger boy bringing food to this battle. And we'd be like, that makes no sense for this battle. Like this is just some guy bringing food. Why in the world would this happen? Right? Shepherds were nothing special. Usually it was younger girls who, who would shepherd. And not because it was looked down upon, but because it was something that they were that they were able to do to contribute to the house. It didn't take a lot of strength to do that, right? It took some skills, but didn't take that strength. War is not a place for David, especially with Goliath. Right? He, he wasn't one who you look at me like, oh, that guy's a champion fighter. It doesn't fit the story. It shouldn't be in the story at all. But God. But God had Plan, a trick up his sleeve. See, a chapter before, David was oil on his head as king. He was, he, was a, he was anointed as king. He was the secret king. No one else knew that. Maybe, I mean, there were a few people around, but, but no one knew that he was the king. And he was an unimpressive boy king. But here's the thing. He knew that the king's duty was to... to protect God's honor, and to bring shalom. And the true king says, I got this. I'll take care of this. I'll do what I'm supposed to do. No one else wants to step up and, and, and be there for, for, for God's honor. No one else wants to step up and bring shalom. No one else wants to take out this guy. I will do it. I will do it because I am the true king. And we can go like, okay, how does he do it? How does he do it? Well, first they try to dress David in Saul's clothes. They, they try to dress him as Saul. But they were telling him, okay, David, yep, you can go out to the battle, but you have to pretend to be Saul. You have to put on somebody else's clothes. And, and for, for you to be king, for you to do kingly things, you have to be like Saul. You have to act like somebody else. And what does David do? He's like, nope, this isn't working. I don't know how to move like this. I don't know what this is about. So how is David going to do God's work? Chose five smooth stones. So what, what do shepherds do? 
You can shout it out. I'm, what'd you say? Protect? What else? Guide, lead. The biggest thing that shepherds do is throw rocks because it's born. Even now, even like in spring of this year, there was a shepherd, came along a shepherd, and he was throwing rocks because even with cell phones, right? Cell phones only last so long, and you're out in the middle of nowhere, and they just throw rocks. They are bored. Usually they'll pick like a can or a target, and they'll just throw rocks. Choo, 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 for hours because there's nothing else to do. Like they probably have this game of seeing how often they can hit the can. They also throw rocks if, if they're guiding their sheep and they're going a little bit to the left here, they would throw it off um, farther to the left to guide them back right because sheep are skittish animals. And so they would do that and they'd throw rocks. They'd also have a sling, right, if there'd be wild animals coming up. But the stones, of course, a shepherd would have stones. It's a gift that they've been giving and David refined it. David got better at the skill that God had given him. Hours and hours, thousands upon thousands and thousands of times he was throwing stones. He trusted what he could do with a stone. So when David goes to the Goliath to defeat him, to, to bring shalom, he goes with the talents that God had given him and that he had refined over time. He's nothing more, nothing less. He goes exactly with what God has equipped him with. And it says David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag, taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the head. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down. And we can just read this. We're like, oh, yeah, of course David did that. But I want you to imagine it for a second. Yeah, David says this up, up on the um, hill that he'll go take out Goliath. And that's really easy to say. But now, now imagine you go down towards the valley, and now you are on the same level as him. Think Mike, Mike, Mike. I think Mike grew up in, but a little taller, a little bigger, with like a sword and a spear and all of that. And okay, maybe, maybe from up there, it wouldn't look so bad, but you're down there, and you're looking up. Imagine his eyes. He'd be like, yeah, I've, I've heard from God. I've heard what I'm supposed to do, but now my eyes see something different. Imagine there was a temptation to maybe run and just be like, yeah, you know what? Forget it. See you guys. I'm going to go back to my sheep. That wasn't so bad. Or maybe he could have run and gone back to, to Saul and been like, you know what, that um, sword and that, that shield and all that you had for me doesn't seem so bad now. He doesn't. He trusts God. He trusts God. He says, you know what, the skills God has given me, they'll work to do God's work. They'll be enough to do God's work. And so what does this trust do? It brings shalom. It brings shalom to the world. Because the kingdom of chaos flees and runs and gets out of there. And what's left at the center of the world is the kingdom of shalom, the kingdom of order and flourishing for all people. There's a little question that I have with this. Why five still? Why not one? Maybe two, maybe three. Like, you have to think about this. If, if they're not too far away, if David were to take out one stone and start to sling it and miss, he can maybe get two or three in, and then Goliath is going to be there, right? A Goliath wasn't the fastest, but, but he would still close that distance. Why five? I, I had a, a, a leader ask me this in Colorado. I taught on this. And he's like, Mike, how, how come there's five? I'm like, I, I don't know. Right? That's the beautiful thing. Those of us who teach Scripture do not know everything about it. And we were wrestling with it later, 
And he, he brought up, hey, I've studied numbers um, in Scripture, and five means great. And so with high school students, we wrestled. How is God bringing grace into this world through David killing Goliath? Now, these were really good questions, and we wrestled together. And what we came to is that, right, we have the kingdom of chaos, trying to take over the kingdom of shalom. If they do, chaos will go out through the world. The world will be filled with chaos. So God's grace is that he provided David to take his skills to throw the stone. Right? It's God's grace. God uses people to bring his grace into this world. Like I love even seeing it right during prayer time. Like during prayer time, praying for each other, bringing grace. Dave and Tyler at um, Streets Tacos, bringing grace to me, using their skills for that. So we come to this passage, the end of this, this um, and it says, I think it's asking us, will you use your stone to bring shalom into this world? Will you be a person who brings shalom into this world? Because here's the thing, you have been placed somewhere on purpose. Each and every one of us, God has placed us somewhere on purpose, whether it's our house, our job, the teams we're part of. God has said, I've placed you there on purpose because I need you to bring shalom to the world. It's not tied to one place anymore. He wants it to be in every square inch of this world where shalom is brought. And as we do it, we're going to face temptation, the temptation to run, to hide, to pretend. But God calls us to trust our eyes or to trust our ears over our eyes, to to refine our stone and gifts. We all have a stone to throw and God desires and needs us to throw our stone where we're at, our school, our job, our sports team our neighborhood. So finding your stone can be difficult. Um, mine is kind of a weird one. Like, so I teach the Bible, but as Dave has so graciously put it to me, Mike, you don't fit the normal West, M- Mich- West Michigan mold of teacher. Yep, I don't fit the normal mold. That's all right. But it's taken a lot of time and a lot of voices to realize that I guide people, that that's what I'm called to do. And so it's taken a lot. So here's kind of what I want to walk us through as you maybe try to figure out what your stone is. The first is to notice. What is it that you do well or different than others? I started to notice how I would teach people one-on-one differently than others. I was like, oh, like that's part of my stone. That's how I teach. I teach a little bit different than other people. Seek input from others, right? For me, it was Dave, it was other people. Tell me the truth. And some people would tell me the truth without me wanting them to tell the truth, but, but they would. They would help guide me along. Oh, no, this is your style. This is who you are as a teacher. This is who you are as a person. And then discern with prayer, right? People will tell you things. Sometimes people tell you things that are not true at all, but discern, okay? Yep, I've noticed things. I've, I've thought what other people have said. How do I do that? I want to encourage us to help others, to do the I see in you. After we did this, roughly in Colorado, we sat in a circle around a fire, and I thought it would take 45 minutes. It took two and a half hours. I'm terrible with time guessing. But they said for each student, for each person, each leader, this is what I see in you. And that does so much for somebody. So if somebody's here, grab them before they leave and say, I see in you. At, at the dinner table today, say, I see in you this, because that helps people develop their stone. 
And, and you could be sitting here all hyped. Yeah, I'm supposed to like, go throw my stone. I'm supposed to go bring shalom to a broken world to bring God's grace and, and glory into this world. And I think Satan wants to, uh, there's three lies that Satan wants to tell us. First is, I don't have a stone. You may be sitting here, I don't have a stone. Ah, it's not that important. It's a lie. God handcrafted you in your mother's womb. And he gave you a gift. He gave you a stone. He says, I need you to throw that stone to bring shalom. For such a time as this, I brought you to where you are to bring shalom. And so you do. You have a gift. You have a stone. Maybe you're like, you know what? My, my gift isn't that good for, for what I'm supposed to do. But again, let's think through a battle. Would, would a sling seem as good as a spear? Probably not. So again, no, God wants your gift. It may not seem impressive to you, but it will do his work because it's God who works through it. It's not us. It's not our power. It's his power. And then we may say, yeah, I have this gift. I have this stone, but somebody else can do it better. So there's a little hidden in this. So um, in Judges, sometimes you want to read Judges 20, 15 through 17, it said that the, the Benjamites, the tribe that Saul was from, were sling throwers, and they could hit a hair. They could hit a hair. So if we're thinking about David going out into battle with the sling, our mind should have an alarm. Oh, Saul's better. Saul's from the tribe where they train and they know how to hit a hair. And yet, God uses the faithful over the most skilled. The one who will go out, the one who will trust their ears over their eyes, they will use that. So maybe that is you today. So in, in Israel, I picked up uh, more stones than this, but four stones, show and tell. But they remind me. I brought them because I knew I'm forgetful. My wife would totally agree that I am a very forgetful person. I will learn something, and it will leave my mind. And so I want to end us with this. So this stone is from the top overlooking the battle, or the valley where the battle happened, right? They don't know exactly where it happened. I always joked with Dave that, that, that this is the actual stone, but I got it from up top. And I got it because I wasn't sure where we were going to go down in the valley. I should have known we would have, right? Like, you're on a tour. Like, of course you're going to go down the valley. But I got it. But it reminds me that I have a stone to throw, but often I have a backup plan. See, David waited till he was down in the valley to grab the stone. Often I want to grab it up top and have the God, I'll kind of follow your will, but I'll have a backup plan. Of a stone from the stream, which is not impressive. I sent a picture to my wife. She was very disappointed with what the stream looked like. But the stone, a stone from the stream. Of I have a stone, will I use it for God's glory? Later on, we went to Caesarea, and I found limestone, and found out that Herod um, covered all the buildings with limestone because he wanted his name to be made great so that when people would come in and see the city, they'd be blown away with how it shined. And they'd say, great is Herod. And Herod was amazing at designing things. Like, oh, I'd love to tell you the stories of how he designed things that shouldn't even be able to be done now. He had a stone to throw. But also on that beach, there's, there's um, marble. Um, marble is shiny. And what would happen is that the Romans saw later on they tore down Herod's limestone and they put marble on because it was even greater. It was shining even more. 
It's reminding myself that, that I can use my stone to build up my name, my glory, but it'll all be torn down someday. If I want it to last, it's this stone. So I want to end with this. As you look at these stones, as God is calling us to throw our stone to bring shalom into the world, are we going to have a backup plan? Are we going to kind of do it, but like, ah, God, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to fully do it? Are we going to use it for our glory, for our honor? We're going to build our kingdom? Or will we trust our ears over our eyes? Will we throw our stone into this world so that shalom will come and that the glory of God will reign forth?